Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios' Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and today I am joined by my friend James. How are you, James? I'm doing just fine. And you? I'm doing pretty good today. Uh, had a long day of Pokemon hunting uh, with the family, so it was a good day. So I'm today we are going to be doing another historical gaming uh, episode, and specifically we're going to be talking about Native America. Uh, that is, it's a topic that TSR really didn't address too, too much in a lot of their supplements, and I'm not, I don't really have much in the way of third, fourth, or fifth edition materials. Well, I don't think they really did anything in fifth yet. They didn't really do anything in fifth yet. Yeah, and what about, have you, since I believe you're more familiar with 3rd edition than I am, uh, in the 3rd edition Legends and Lore, do you know if they've done anything with, like, Native American stuff in there? Uh, basically, they did a little bit less than they did in the 2E version. They didn't go in such detail. <laughs> yeah, because in the 1st and 2nd edition Legends and Lore books, they did have a section about, you know, Native American mythos, but... One of the things they mentioned in there is that they kept it very vague, and for a good reason. And I think this might be one of the reasons they never really uh, went into too much detail about Native American campaigns for Dungeons and Dragons, is because you have to consider that there are a lot of Native American tribes. I believe between the U.S. and Canada. There's somewhere between about five to six hundred officially recognized tribes, and if we want to expand that further, if we include Mexico, Central America, and South America, you know, again, there's going to be a lot more tribes that of indigenous people to the North America, Central America, and South American you know, continents. So. For today's episode, we're going to be focusing primarily on the U.S., Canada, and uh, Mexico. Though I think we could also you could also expand it to include Greenland as well, because before Scandinavian settlers arrived there, there were of course indigenous people in Greenland. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of the word. Anthropologically, the study of like people's cultures and such. I'm not sure if they're considered a part of the the Native America or the First Nations, but I, I suppose you could probably maybe include them in there as well. So, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of uh, your Native American ancestry? Well, first of all, to shoot everyone out, I am Shoshone and Nespius. I've more had to do research since my family didn't want me to truly introduce me to the Native Americans by taking me to um, uh, what I called uh, powwows. I'll help me out, huh? Powwows. Powwows. Besides that, the um, uh, reservations. The reservations, okay. Yeah, my mother and my father, mainly my mother, didn't want to take me to reservations in thought of, oh, they're going to take me since I'm not, in Native American eyes, legally adopted. So, with that hand, children of Native American descendancy, the tribes themselves actually raised the children 
if they're adopted out, which is very rarely, there's a lot of paperwork that has to be settled through, and normally the other parents have to be of other native blood. <laughs> Mine, not so much. Since in my case, I kind of flew under the radar. And what part of the U.S. were your were your the Nez Pierce and uh, Shoshone from? Uh, well, right now, just North America, in North America, right now is in Idaho. Both tribes are right now in Idaho. I don't believe they're in conflict right now. Do you know where they originally came from? Were they? Because I mean, I know that there's some Native American tribes that where uh, just over the course of time they migrated to other parts like the like a couple of the Great tribes depression. that are yeah and uh, a couple of the tribes that are really uh prominent in Wisconsin the Ojibwa and the Oneida I believe they originally came from further east and then they they what's the word I'm looking for um migrated to the you know the Great Lakes region so that oh, would be a better word <laughs> Well, no, this is actually before European settlement. They did, you know, they did have some, oh, okay. uh, yeah, they, they did purposely migrate from, you know, the northeastern United States more towards the central. And there could have been several reasons why it's not something I've researched. It may have been overpopulation. So some people decided they, you know, wanted to try to expand on, or it may have been due to, you know, disease or famine that could have forced them to relocate from their current, you know, their, their original homelands to other parts of the, the U.S. And that's another reason that when we do approach taking a Native American uh, approach to a, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, why it can be kind of tricky is since you have all these different tribes, they're going to have different customs. Now, there are going to be some parallels and some overlapping, which we'll probably be getting into later. But Obviously, the you know a tribe from the you know the, from the northeast U.S. they're going to have a lot of differences in their you know their weapons and their equipment than tribes that were from the southeast or from the you know the southwest. So, and again, we'll be getting in a little bit into that later. So, there, you're you're going to have a lot of variation. So that's one of the reasons why. I think maybe TSR decided not to really approach it is you'd have to kind of oversimplify things. Well, maybe not oversimplify. <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah, or maybe oversimplify might not be the best word. Um, generalize. I think those would both be like understatements to what you have to do here. Yeah. So if you did want to uh, run a Native American themed campaign, one thing you might want to do, I guess it depends how much of a stickler for historical accuracy that you and your group are. I mean, I would certainly encourage people to learn about the tribes that are indigenous to your area in you know, the U.S. or Canada or Mexico and try to find out some of the customs of you know, these, these people if you did want to introduce them into the, the campaign. Now, uh, just a quick aside before we jump right in here. The closest that TSR really came to creating a Native American setting, at least that I'm aware of, in the Forgotten Realms, they did introduce a campaign setting that I think was 
called Mazteca, it was more or less based on like the Aztecs. So it was based more on uh, the the indigenous people of Mexico. So if um you know if you are if you do want to set your campaign in a you know ancient Mexico, that might be a good resource to pick up if you can find it. So let's jump right in here and uh, I'm gonna follow a similar pattern that I did when I did my episode about historical gaming for Egypt. So let's start with weapons and equipment. Now, from your knowledge or your studies, what are some of the major types of weapons that Native American tribes used? Well, one of them actually would be the bows and arrows, spears, war clubs, tomahawks and axes, American knives, uh, let's see, swords are actually one of them, and cube sticks, bolus. This is a list I have. (laughs) Yeah. Because I couldn't find really much about swords. So, I mean, I know that as far as the knives go, um, they usually used either shirt, copper, or if it was available, obsidian uh, for their, their main knives and cutting weapons. Do you know which tribes were known to have used some kind of a, well, what we might consider a sword? Uh, actually, it has a little thing here that actually tells me, since I have websites also popping up to help me out here. Uh, would you like me to read it for you, quick? Sure. Uh, swords were not traditional weapons of Native Americans in most tribes, and never became very popular after your uh, European contact either. An exception is Native tribes in a, of Alaska, where... where Longer iron versions of traditional double-sided daggers were made by the Tlingit? Huh? Yeah, where I, I I think I know what tribe you're talking about. I couldn't pronounce it either. So, Tlingit and Haida. Haida people in the 1800s in Mexico, a unique style of sword. Well, now we're popping into Mexico, but do we want to pop that into as well, or do we yeah, not? Yeah, because... That was actually one that I was going to mention, and I think both of us are probably going to totally maim and slaughter their pronunciation. Makahutil? Uh, Makahutil. Yes, and this was this was probably the closest to a sword of ancient America. It would, I think in D&D terms, you could treat it the equivalent of a two-handed sword. What it was, it was actually more like a two-handed club, but it had obsidian blades attached to it. And so the the blows from this weapon were supposed to be so devastating that it could deca- easily decapitate a man or in the hands of a skilled and strong warrior could even decapitate a horse. Well, actually, I wouldn't put it as a two-handed weapon because from the image that I'm seeing, it can actually be used as a one-handed, so I would more place it as a bastard sword. Okay, yeah, fair enough. it says... Those who can wield it, because it can be wielded with a shield as well. Okay, and I, and it wouldn't surprise me. And I, I mean, even even if you are talking about a fantasy setting, I, I I see no problem with doing like you could either just treat it as a bastard sword, or you could have it. There's like one-handed and two-handed versions, but I, I mean, I I think you could make the two-handed version of that weapon equivalent to a two-handed sword because these these weapons were supposed to be really, really powerful 
especially in the hands of a, a very skilled and strong warrior. And, and you mentioned clubs, which there were, I know there were several types of clubs that were used in uh, Native American yep, tribes. Yep. Uh, there were ones that were carved to have like a ball head. And yep, the Chippewa Ballhead War Club, uh, the Plains Indian Stone and Northwest Coast Carf Club, as well as the Great Lakes Spiked Club. Yep, so they did have spiked clubs, and I know that after European contact, uh, Native Americans noticed how like sometimes they would use muskets as a club, so there are some clubs that they, they made which looked kind of like the the stock of a, of a musket, and then they would often entice, attach a, a spike to that as well. The Plains tribes, I believe the ones they used, it had the stone head lashed onto it, and it had almost like a whip-like strike to it. So, uh, tomahawks, I know, and then addle addle that's another one you could use. Essentially, it's a javelin thrower that would give you a little extra oomph when you're throwing your spear. Yep, that's one of them. Yep, and then the also lances. I understand that there were some tribes they did have. It, it wouldn't be like the medieval lance, but essentially it was just a longer spear that was meant to be used from horseback. The, at least that's from our research here. Those are some of the more common ones that uh, you would find in a, a Native American, if you did want to do a historical Native American campaign. So... As with any historical campaign, I think that's one of the things that can be challenging is you have to consider what period of ancient America are you going to set your campaign in. Um, obviously, if you do it during the time of European, you know, when they were coming into contact with Europeans, that's going to have a lot different flavor to it than if you were going to do something before European contact. Let's move on from weapons to armor. And like with the ancient Egypt setting that I talked about a few episodes ago, this is where I think it can be challenging to do armor because, at least from when I did my research, it didn't seem like there was a lot of armor use among Native Americans. As I recall from one a website I looked at, one of the reasons I usually didn't wear armor other than a shield is going into battle without armor was considered a mark of the warrior's courage, skill, and agility. So, I mean, one thing I could certainly see is if you are going to, you know, maybe at least allow warrior classes to specialize in shield just to reflect the fact that, yeah, they're going to, since they usually didn't wear a lot of armor, they're probably going to try to become more proficient with that shield. I would agree with that as well, as well as the different types. Uh, main type of shields were high cover with a wood frame. Another one that's kind of rare is something with bone. That's just something I'm looking at right now, is a mild bone shield, they're very uncommon. How would that, does, uh, to the site you're looking at there, does it say how they would make a bone shield? I think, let's see, it just says they're pretty rare, uh, here we go. No, wait, that's the breastplates. Leather armor, you could definitely allow. Um, hide armor, I think, would probably be more common further north. Because I believe in the D&D handbooks, they usually describe hide armor as being made of 
the hide of things like, you know, like the bigger, tougher creatures. But usually it was made to be a little heavier and thicker than just regular leather armor was. So, I mean, I could see that as you start to go further north, you would probably have something equivalent to hide armor because, of course, you're going to get colder as you start moving into northern Canada. So you're going to need... Uh, not, you're going to need that not only for physical protection, but protection from the elements as well. And I, I think you were mentioned before bone armor, so that would be like the breastplates. Correct. Because, I mean, I, I'm under the impression that there were a couple different types, or there may have been ones that were designed for warfare, but there may have also been ones that were more ornamental. Uh, especially after European contact, it became more common to make breastplates that would have beads instead of, uh, you know, bone uh, slats for protection. And those were more intended to show off your wealth. But I believe there were some, there were definitely some types of bone breastplates that were designed specifically for uh, protection in combat. I remember when I was younger, back when I was either Cub Scout or Boy Scout, I forgot which, we went to Wisconsin Dells, which is a city in South Central Wisconsin. And we were listening to a Native American speaker. Now, one of the more prominent tribes down there is the Ho-Chunk. So he may have been a part of the Ho-Chunk. I'm not, not quite sure. I don't, I don't remember because it was so many years ago. But this might be a little thing that you could work into the different types of arrows that you're going to allow in the campaign. He was mentioning that because of these bone breastplates, and I believe the chokers that they were had a similar construction where the choker was a piece you would wear around your neck. Correct. It's made out of wood. Well, what this uh, this armor would did is it for, it made the the tribe of that area, they developed two different types of arrows. The first one had the head mounted vertically. Those arrows were actually used primarily for hunting. Because of the construction of these bone breastplates, if you used one of those arrows against someone wearing that type of armor, it was less likely to penetrate the, you know, the, the armor. So they used another type of arrow specifically for war, and these would have been arrows that had the arrowhead mounted horizontally, because that would have an easier time fitting through the the slats on these these bone breastplates. Now, also while I was doing research, and I'm not sure if you ran into this as well, but when we started to move towards the Pacific Northwest, they actually had some types of armor made out of wood and may have even used wooden helms as well. Correct. I'm actually reading that right now. So in D&D terms, I think you could probably treat that as equivalent to banded mail or maybe bronze plate mail. Uh, as far as protection it would offer? I'd, I'd go with more bronze plate mail. Yeah, because that, that would probably be about the best type of armor that would be available at that time, uh, you know, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Now, the Aztecs, they also had something that would be been similar to padded armor. So this I could see maybe treating as studded leather. And what it was, it was made of different layers of quilted materials and what they would do is they would soak this armor in 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 salt water and it was known to be actually quite effective against arrows and it was so effective against the arrows that were used down there that 
when the Spanish uh, came to that area, they actually took to using that armor instead of their heavier metal armor because it was a lot more comfortable in that warmer climate down there. Plain's Indian breastplate, like you said earlier, was made out of bone or actually wooden tubes laced together to protect the chest without restricting movement. Such tribes, like you said, where the northwest coast used heavier rod armor made with interlocking wooden plates and rods, and in some cases even used two-piece carved wooden helmets consisting of a top helm and lower visor. Well, now that we've talked about different types of armor and weapons you might find in uh, a Native American campaign, let's talk about the different classes that and how you might integrate them into this type of campaign. Because in the historical reference books, they often would talk about whether a certain class would be appropriate for a strictly historical campaign or for a historical fantasy campaign. Now, I think for today, let's focus a bit more on historical fantasy as opposed to historical realism, because, I don't know, doing a strictly realistic historical campaign just doesn't seem as much fun or as much exciting to me. What do you think? I would agree with that entirely. <laughs> I don't know. It just it seems a lot more fun if you are doing these campaigns set in an ancient world to have that magic and mystery that you could you could integrate into the world. So let's start with probably the easiest one, the fighter. Fighter's going to be pretty easy because, well, they fight and their only real limitations are going to be the weapons and armor that they are allowed to use during that time period. Though, as we mentioned before, I mean, I could see giving fighters the option to specialize in the use of a shield. Now, one thing that could actually be kind of challenging to work with, this would apply more towards the earlier version of D&D, because in basic first and second, they usually gave options for attracting followers. And one of the things that a fighter would do is at a certain level, they could establish a plot of land, and then they would attract a certain number of uh, foot soldiers, that would be accompanied by one or two leaders who would be a little bit higher level fighters. So do you, how do you think you could integrate that into a Native American-themed campaign? Well, actually, the way I thought of this would be more like, if you actually go into orc category, and no, I'm not trying to insult my people here, it's just more the orcs have more of a Native American style to them. When tribes come to be, the tribal leader will be taken down by the next greatest fighter, or be married into that. So that's how I think it would be. So, say you're, what was it, level 7, I do believe? I think level 8 or 9 was when they would start to get the ability to attract uh, fighter or attract followers. Not exactly sure, but I think it's around that area. Well, something I would do with this is then. Okay. You have gained enough honor into this tribe to be able to marry my daughter or son, as by which gender you are. Because even though female fighters weren't that common, actually, females were more like the hunching gathering type. But we'll toss it out the window quick. <laughs> yeah, because and and again, though that's that you do make a good point. Um, I believe in most Native American cultures, the you know the females were expected to do more of the staying home, whereas the men 
were the ones who would go out and do all the hunting and the fighting. So, but of course, for like a, a historical fantasy campaign, we can throw that out the window because, you know, if someone wants to play a female character, they shouldn't be forced to stay back at camp and do all the cooking and cleaning. Like, something I would do with that entirely is this. You reach this certain level, and you've worked with this one tribe, let's go Shoshone for a bit, you've proven your worth to them. Say, you've gathered enough food, you've taken out enough wars between the other tribes, you've earned the right to marry a daughter or take the chieftain's throne if the chief has not given off any daughters. Which is the way, if you actually look in orc history... That's how they did it as well. Well, history, mythology, whatever. <laughs> a, a lot of Native American tribes, they revered their warriors. So, you know, the, the veteran, the soldier, the fighter, they hold a very important place in Native American culture, both past and present. So another way I could see you could work that is maybe the, you know, once you reach that level, the chief of your tribe, he recognizes your 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 skill and your courage and he gives you a section of the tribe so you could go branch out and maybe form your own outpost now this is moving a a little bit of ahead of ourselves but before we were we started recording we were talking about a couple of native american sites in the u.s one is cahokia which it was a huge native american city that was located on the it was located not too far from St. Louis, Missouri, and it's on the the uh, Illinois side of the Mississippi River. They had uh, a system of mounds that they built, and you know these weren't just like the effigy mounds that you hear about, but actually earthen pyramids. And the largest known one was called Monk's Mound, which I believe had some sort of religious uh, religious purpose to it, but just to give you an idea of the scale and complexity, this pyramid or this earthwork, more properly, was at its height probably about the same size as the Great Pyramid of Giza. So you think about it, that was pretty amazing accomplishment for them. And but Cahokia was this large city, and eventually it fell into decline. Scholars believe that there may have been a disease that went through the area that could have caused the population decline, or it may have been because of a famine due to uh, climate change. So, well, here in Wisconsin, we have a place called Astalon State Park, and Astalon has some very similar mound pyramids there. And it's believed that Astalon was an outpost of Cahokia. So to bring this back to the fighters, I could see something like that happening where the chief says, you know, okay, you've got, you know, you're, you're this strong, skilled warrior. So now we're going to, you know, we're going to give you permission to go start this outpost in another, you know, another place nearby. Let's go to the next warrior class, the ranger. So in 2nd edition D&D, and I think in a lot of the other versions of D&D, they picture the ranger as being this warrior woodsman type character. So how, do you, how would you integrate the ranger into a Native American themed campaign? 
well, how I see it is kind of integrates itself already. It's a woodland adventure, more or less, correct? Yes, correct. And rangers normally have a companion with them, such as a wolf or a bear or someone like that, correct? Um, it, it depends. I mean, there. I know they're in the complete ranger's handbook in second edition. They did give options for that, and at higher levels, rangers do have the ability to attract followers. Well, something I go with that is this. And I, a ranger would normally start with this animal, but this animal has to be its totem. So, like, you have the totem of the bear, the alligator, the the anteater, the antelope, and so on and so forth. And they help in some ways. What ways? Stealth checks and so on and so forth. Because if I remember correctly, the ranger still gets, like, thief abilities. Not as many, but... In second edition. In second edition, in second edition. Yeah, second edition, they do gain the ability to move silently and hide in shadows. First edition rangers, they're kind of their own animal. They're they're badass, but I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I could picture a first edition ranger in a D and D campaign just because they're, like I said, they're really kind of their own thing. I'll I'll introduce you to that some other day. <laughs> I've actually been introduced already. Yep. Don't get me started with them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think so, a first edition or second edition ranger or just the general concept of the ranger as this wilderness warrior, I think that could work pretty well as it is because they could be the scout for the, you know, for the tribe. So if they're going to go to war with another tribe, they could be the one that's, you know, leading the, you know, the wilderness expedition part of the, that campaign. And, and I do like your idea about the, you know, the, the totem animal and giving them the ability to, you know, start with an animal companion. Now, next, this brings us to the Paladin. I don't know about you, but no. I think the Paladin, yeah, it's, because, no. <laughs> yeah, because the, it's, because the plan is really kind of based on that whole idea of the knight in shining armor, but, I mean, even if you strip away the part about the the bonded mount and being this, you know, this the 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 sh- knight in shining armor, you could consider them as basically a warrior upholding the the principles of law and goodness. I don't know. Do you think that could work in a Native American type campaign, or do you think that's best left for the like a, a European style campaign? Well, how I see the spam in the can. I'm sorry if anyone doesn't know what the heck that is. That's the paladin we're talking about. Uh, how I see them is this. They're upholding religious people. They're more, uh, I would agree they're more in the European era, because that was more where religion took into effect much wider than it does in Native American teachings. Yes, they did have Native teachings, but they weren't strict about it, which the paladin, if in the quote-unquote, right scenario, they're religious huggers. Yeah, I mean, essentially it's a holy warrior, which I don't know if there, I said I haven't really researched it enough to know if there is the equivalent of a holy warrior type in uh, Native American cultures. I mean, it is possible that there might be some tribes that, you know, do have a concept of a holy warrior. And if you are basing your campaign around that particular t- tribe, maybe you could allow a paladin with some restrictions, but 
as far as the warrior classes go, probably fighter and ranger would be best suited for a Native American-themed yeah. campaign. Well, next we go to the next non-magic-using class, the thief. And we can probably talk about the bard as well. So first starting with the thief, I don't know. I think this would be very difficult to integrate into a Native American campaign because while you could certainly have people who, you know, are really good at sneaking around, there are some thieving abilities that I wouldn't allow in a a campaign like this. I mean, I don't think they really had any sort of, uh, you know, like lock system back then. So you really wouldn't have the ability to pick locks. And I'm not even sure about finding or removing traps, if that would be, if that would be appropriate. I would disagree on that one. Okay. I would disagree on that one. The reason why is because actually Native Americans did set traps to a point. They weren't as big as we're used to. They didn't have like bad traps, locked doors, so on and so forth. You have to think about the simple ones, such as a net trap. Native Americans did use that uh, spring trap, not spring Oh, you're traps. right. Uh, hunting, right. you're right. Hunting traps like snares. Yes. Those you have to count into play as well. We're not just talking about like, oh, it's a trap door. Oh, this chest, it's a mimic. No, you have to think about the small ones as well. <laughs> exactly. And Okay, so that is a good point. So I think maybe if you did in, decide to allow thieves in a Native American-themed campaign, yeah, I could see giving them the... Well, you, 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 I could see, in that case, keeping the ability to you know, maybe give them a chance to spot traps, but also instead of picking locks, maybe giving them the ability to set those simple traps you're talking about. Yeah. Because uh, something you also kind of play is these hunting traps were also used in wars between tribes. Do you see my point? Yeah. So, okay. So y- you would see the thieves' role in a Native American campaign being kind of similar to a ranger where they're like the advanced scouts for uh, the yeah. for their tribe or maybe even kind of like a spy. Correct. Okay. I can see them more being... Because if you actually look in the Complete Thieves Handbook, I believe it's that book, there's an assassin style, which is actually possible. Yeah, because you think about it, an assassin is essentially someone who kills for money. And while historically, I don't think there was anything really equivalent to that in historical Native America, but I could still see someone who... You know, you could have someone who does specialize in killing people, which, you know, at least killing them when they're unaware. So you could justify the use of a backstab or, you know, giving them the backstab ability and setting traps. So good points. I did not consider those. Yeah, another thing you have to count to play is there's actually poisons back then. Frogs had poisons on them, Native Americans used. Uh, berries and so on and so forth. So having the ability for the rogue to indicate that would be another thing, which is why I'm again popping up the assassin is because of these abilities. Okay. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So yeah, with some modifications, you could probably use a thief, but 
again, the role and the flavor of a particular character like that is going to be far different from the thief that we know of in a standard D&D yeah. campaign. You know, he's not scouting ahead to search for traps and open locks and do things like that. He's primarily a, he could be a spy, he could be an assassin, or he could be the advanced scout for his tribes. Let's go to the other rogue class, the bard. Now, as I recall, storytelling was very important in a lot of Native American cultures. Quite so, since there was no writing of some form, like we couldn't really write our tales in a book or a journal or anything, stories were always told by word of mouth. So I could see a bard really being important, but only to a point. I could only really see them as NPCs, personally. Yeah, and I could see giving them... I mean, the the whole thing with the bard about being able to influence reactions and improve the morale of their allies, you know, that I could still see working. I'm not sure if I would go for the, you know, the magic part of the bard, because at least in second edition, and I think in the other editions as well, bards do gain the ability to cast spells. Correct. All after 2E, 3.5, uh, 4, and 5E, the bards do get spells at later levels. Yeah, I think you're right. A bard, while it could possibly work in a Native American campaign, they would probably lose a lot of their abilities. I couldn't see the magic use ability fitting in very well, and I couldn't see... I can't do a point. Okay. How so? No, this is only for, like, little knickknacks and whatnot. It's because of one thing. Cantrip. Okay. That being the only spell that can affect. Everything else can be tossed out the window, because cantrip, I've always seen it more as a showman spell. Since if you actually looked into when they told stories, they used smoke, fire, and equity, so on and so forth. So that's kind of why Cantrip pops in my mind. Or the first level spell Phantasmal Force. So I could see them also using, yeah, I could see them actually using illusion magic to enhance their storytelling. Like if they're telling a story about a great warrior and a struggle he had against an enemy warrior from another tribe, he could use Phantasmal Force or, you know, illusions to enhance that story as well as the Cantrips. So. Okay, maybe they're not, uh, so yeah, maybe, you know, again, you'd have to really kind of take out. the DM. But yeah, the bard could probably work with some adjustments where, you know, again, we have to take it out of the context of second edition and beyond where the bard was designed to be this, like, jack of all trades. So, again, we could try to focus on the bard's ability as a storyteller and a keeper of lore. I don't know if they do this in 3rd and 4th edition, but I know in 2nd edition we have a, a friend we game with who was playing a bard for a while, and like his raise morale ability just gave like a plus 1 to attack and saves. But, I mean, I could see if for like a Native American bard, you know, where if he is doing his raise morale thing, whether he's reciting a story or playing an instrument, that his... You know, his, the bonus that he grants with his morale raising abilities could get higher every few levels. So, yeah, maybe, yeah, you 
take away the whole thing as the bard is the jack of all trades, and I could see him working in a Native American campaign. So let's move on now to the magic using classes. And the bard is kind of a good transition there because, you know, again, well, because in most versions of D&D, the bard does have magic using abilities. So let's start with the priestly classes. Now, as I believe with the, I mean, I think the Aztecs, they did have a an organized hierarchy of priests. So, you know, the cleric class, I think, does work very well if you are setting your, you know, your Native American campaign in Mexico in an Aztec empire. And again, the the Legends and Lore Handbook would probably be a good place to look for some more information on that. Now, what about in other tribes, though? Some tribes more had medicine men who were just there to wound with salves and so on and so forth. So there wasn't really real magic with it. It was just more alchemy, to put it lightly. Alchemic purposes, such as herbs and so on and so forth. So basically they were skilled herbalists as opposed to really being, uh, you know, magical healers. Correct. So yeah, because I, as far as I know, um, I don't think... I don't think there was like an organized hierarchy for most Native American tribes for their their priestlies for their priest classes, but uh, so you think that it would probably be more reasonable to, you know, have the cleric essentially be a medicine man where he again does he specializes in healing as opposed to being this warrior priest that the cleric is in most versions of D and D. Yeah, that's how I more see it is. They're the medicine men. They're more in the background trying to quickly patch up or take time to patch up with salves, roots, uh, brews, and so on and so forth. Since, one, in native times, there wasn't really magic to a point. There was, if you go into more the legends and the myths. So, that's just me personally. Okay, and... So I, I think that if you did want to keep with the you know that role of the medicine man as being strictly a healer, it would probably make more sense to limit his spell selection to uh, more healing and protective magic as opposed to any sort of you know offensive magic. You know, mainly have them focus on being the healer. But what about turning undead? Do you think that that's appropriate? Turning undead is turning undead's an iffy one because there are legends about undead running around in legends, if I remember correctly. So I could see that to a point if the DM has created an area where undead is around. So that's also DM's choice floating in the air, quick. Okay, so let's move on then to the other priestly class, the druid. This I couldn't really see being very appropriate because the whole concept, I mean, with the Druids being, you know, based loosely on the, you know, ancient Celtic priestly class, whereas eventually it moved to more of a nature priest who's concerned with, you know, the balance between law and chaos and good and evil. So, I don't know. What is your thought on druids? Do you think that I could, could see work? the druid personally? I can see the druid being 
actually what he is. Okay. He's a nature lover. He's someone who's out alone most of the time, protecting the balance between not the world, between our plane and the spirit world. That's okay. how I can see a druid working. Because if you actually go into some of the legends, I'm remembering one right now of... Uh, I'm forgetting what the name was, but it was a man who lost his wife and would never marry. He wandered away, walked away for so long, trying to find the place of the spirit world. He found a man who, I think, slid his hand? And it... I, I, this is what I'm trying to remember here. Since it's been a while since I've heard this legend, so if, I, so if someone butchers me, please comment below and say, Hey, you got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so... With that, the druid, I'm going to call him quick, put him into a world of the spirits, where he went through, well, a warrior here went to the spirit world to see his wife again, and the druid brought him back, back to our world once he was done. That's how I can see it. So, you would see the druid in a Native American campaign being more of a a hermit who prefers to live on the outskirts of the tribe. Yes, I can see him be more the outskirts of the tribe and trying to take balance not of the physical world, but of the spiritual and the physical at the exact same time. Okay, so yeah, I suppose that makes sense, being that intermediary between the, the physical world and spirit world. Well, let's move on to the last of the classic core classes, and that it would be the wizard. So, in a lot of the historical supplements, they recommend that if you allow a wizard in a historical fantasy campaign, it's probably best that they're the, they're specialist wizards, and they usually limit the the number of spells they would have access to. For example, something like you know necromancy or divination, you could easily work that into a historical campaign, but you know, it's it's very rare that you find stories about wizards who are running around casting fireballs and lightning bolts and things like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, just the image of a Native American tossing a fireball <laughs> and an enemy tribe so, is hilarious. So you, you couldn't see a Native American wizard running around throwing fireballs at things? I could see it. I just find it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on how you could adapt the wizard class to a Native American campaign? The only way I could see that is if, personally, if one of the deities came into play. What I mean is this. Say, if you think about Native Americans, we were more nature-based and focused on the elements. We thought about more fire, wind, so on and so forth. So, to a point, I can see that. So, I'm not going to say, I am going to say specialize, but I'm going to make that a little bit further. If you're going to specialize in an offensive way, like you're going to focus into fire, you're going to focus into lightning, focus only into those. So you could see, like, if you are going to have a wizard who specializes in offensive magic, you know, here's one that focuses on ice and cold-based magic, or here's one that focuses, well, like, you know, that would be essentially, I guess, be a, maybe one that focuses on water, one that focuses on lightning, yeah. or like air, he would be able to cast lightning-based spells, and then fire and earth. Yeah. And what about for wizards, 
are there any spells or any types of magic that you would see as not being appropriate for a Native American campaign? Necromancy. Okay. The reason why I say no necromancy on this is because of one simple thing. There's not many legends or myths about it. The, I've, I found like one out of the entire bundle of it. and So there may have been concepts. Yeah, there may have been concepts of it, but it's not that big. So yeah, there may have been some legends of spirits, but we really didn't see anything with like the dead walking the earth type thing where like in, you know, in Europe we have stories about vampires and you know, zombies like that. Well, I don't know if there are really many zombies in European folklore, but um, you know, again, we have like the concept of the vampire and then in, you know, some cultures you did have stories about you know, the dead who could get up and walk around after life's or after death. So that's not really appropriate for Native American, but you could see maybe limiting necromancy to affecting spirits and intangible yeah. undead. The other thing that I could see is maybe not being appropriate, like conjuration and summoning. I mean, I could see summoning animals that I could see working. That's but it, my opinion. Yeah, yeah I... I can't see, like, a Native American wizard summoning a manticore or a dragon and having it make sense in the purpose of the campaign, so... Something I could actually see the conjurer doing is somewhat what the necromancer is doing, because I kind of put two and two together on this one, because in my eyes they're the same exact thing, because I play way too many video games that combines them. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, with conjurations, they're manifesting the spirits around them, more or less. They're conjuring up some four um, from God knows where. So being able to contact, like the, pre- like, the former priest who is now dead to get information, I can see that to a point. Well, I think we're actually making a pretty smooth transition into the next thing, monsters. Now, the... This is, uh, I think, was one of the more challenging things to research because, I mean, I haven't, at least in the the few Native American legends that I'm familiar with, there really weren't too many monsters. And I know we've talked about this a little bit when we were preparing for this episode, that one, you know, that the, the concept of giants, that there were some tribes that did believe in them. So you could, could you see like ogres or hill giants working as monsters in a, a Native American-themed campaign? Ogres, to a point, yes. Giants, yes and no. Why I say yes and no is because of how rare they would be. Yeah, I could see them being very rare. They would be nowhere near as common as they are in Dungeons & Dragons. Because there is one Native American legend that I am that I am familiar with, and I think it... It's from one of the tribes of the Pacific Northwest, and it was a story that involved a giant, but it also explained the origin of mosquitoes. The story goes that there was this tribe that was being harassed by a giant, and this giant would, uh, he would kidnap people so he could drink their blood. And, you know, the warriors were having a hard time fighting this giant because no matter where they shot him, you know, they would, always, of course, try to shoot him in the heart, in his chest, but that never would kill him. So they thought, well, maybe his heart is somewhere else. So they would try 
shooting arrows into his arms and his legs, and they just couldn't kill him. Well, there was one warrior who he decided to try to outwit the giant, and he went to where the giant was known to hunt, and he played dead. Well, when the giant came by, he found him and, you know, found this, you know, warrior's body there. He's like, oh, and he's still warm. I'm going to take him home and drink his blood later. And when he was at the giant's lair, when he, when the giant had left, he went to one of the giant's servants and asked where his heart was. And it was in like, I think it was his left ankle, I wanted to say, I want to say. The warrior used that to his advantage and he killed the giant. And as the giant was dying, he said, you know, even though you kill me, I will still drink your people's blood. And of course, this made the warrior very angry. So he built a large fire and he burned the giant to ashes. And then he's like, so now that I burned you to ashes, how are you going to drink my people's blood? And he picks up some of these ashes and throws them in the air. And then the ashes he throws into the air all of a sudden become mosquitoes. So... I always thought that was a that was a really cool legend where again it, it involves a, a giant and it also explains how we get these little monstrosities known as mosquitoes. Well, actually, now that we pop into this, actually, I can see vampires then. Okay. To a point, because you said giants used to drink blood in the legend you told me. Like, okay, I can see that to a point. If giants actually still did that, I can see that being more vampiric. Vampire giants? Yeah. Okay. That's what I could see, which, since you said originated from mosquitoes. I got a few myself. Actually, one of them would be the elementals. Okay. I figure you've seen D&D, like the water, fire, and whatnot elemental. I've got one right here called the Ababil... I have no clue how to say this name. Ababinili, I think which is the spirit of fire and manifests in fire and the sun, a.k.a. he's the giver of life, light, and warmth. Another famous creature from Native American mythology is the Thunderbird. And from what I understand, the Thunderbird was considered a messenger of the Great Spirit. So I could see giving the Thunderbird control over the weather, but essentially, other than that, basing them off of the Phoenix except their powers are more based on uh, thunder and lightning as opposed to fire like the phoenix is. I understand that you also were doing some other research, so what are some other Native American creatures that you could introduce into the campaign? Well, and no, if anyone's going to be offended by this, I'm not meaning you people, the little people. I'm not kissing you. That is a good point. I should have remembered this, because when I wrote my afterpeak system was setting, I did mention that in the Southwest there was a legend of short race of people that I believe used poisoned arrows. So I can't remember the name of it. Uh, what is the name that you have for them? Uh, it's actually just giving little people. There's many names actually to this by the different types they are. And the Aztec, they're called the Chanakyu. Big, it's the Ilsenak. Kriko, Wampanga. Cherokee, let's go with the Cherokee one. The Wun, the Yunwi Sundi. Okay, and again, we apologize. We we're not sure if we're pronouncing these correctly. So yeah, uh, but yeah, so I, I think you could introduce them, and at least the ones from the Southwest that I heard about, they are not like leprechauns where they are 
you know, they're because leprechauns are essentially good-natured creatures. So I could see maybe giving them similar statistics as a leprechaun, but instead of being lawful good, they would probably be either lawful or neutral evil because, as I recall, they would they would use poison, you know, poison arrows on people. Okay, I think we're thinking about two different ones right now because what I'm reading is actually a different side of it. Okay. Because in native legends, often talk about little people playing pranks on people, uh, such as singing, then hiding, and it was inconvenient person searching for the music, so on and so forth. It is often said that the little people love children and would take them away from bad or abusive parents, or if the child was without parents and left into the woods to fend for themselves. Okay. Okay, and, and I found the name of that that I was talking about. This is from my, again, when I, my after peak system was setting book, uh, let's see the, a small but violent race of people known as the Nimerigar. And they were said to inhabit Wyoming, Colorado, and New oh. Mexico. So they were said to That's be. That's actually Shoshone name. Okay. So yeah, they were extremely aggressive and yeah, they would use bows with poison arrows. So yeah, I could see introducing that essentially Leprechaun's gone bad. Yeah, so, like, we got so many versions of legends and lore here, you have to count that into play as well. Like, the one I have is the Yunwi Isundi. That's the one that's good and takes away children from bad, abusive families. And then there's yours. Murder little people. Murder little people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing we were talking about before is, I believe some Native American tribes did have stories about people who could shapeshift into animals or beasts. So you could see like a werewolf type creature working. To a point, you gotta count that into play as well. Okay. Like if the woman is true, like uh, one of them is actually deer woman, sometimes also known as deer lady, is a shape-shifting woman in Native American mythology in the Oklahoma in western United States and Pacific Northwest. She allegedly appears various times as an old woman or as a young, beautiful maiden or as a deer. So was she more of like a a benevolent creature or malevolent? She seemed more neutral. That's how I'm saying it. Okay, so she did she exist more as like a caretaker of the wilderness or did she have some other purpose? She was more of a caretaker, yeah, from what I'm reading here. She was more of a caretaker of what she was. She took care of nature. She took care of her home. She was more actually the druid type. The Okay, so you, you could see giving Deer Woman uh, the, essentially giving them the powers of a mid to high level druid. Yeah. Any other animals that you, th- or monsters that you think would be appropriate for a Native American campaign? This one's actually, this one's, I have no clue how to pronounce this, so if I butcher this, I do apologize again. The Garcia and Diatha, according to Seneca mythology, is a dragon that dwells in the deep areas of rivers and lakes of Canada, especially Lake Oriento. Yeah, because I remember it, um, Ogopogo or something? Because I, I know that there is a, a North American equivalent to a Loch Ness monster, so you think like a sea serpent type creature could be appropriate. Yeah, uh, no, this dragon could fly on a trail of fire and could also spew fire. It is also known as the meteor dragon in reference to supposed origins of meteorites that impacted the Earth. It is 
capable of crossing heavens on a trail of fire. So I can see them more being... Meteor dragons? Yes, it says right here what I'm reading. Meteor dragon. That has got to be the most flippin' awesome thing I've heard today. Go ahead, everyone say that out loud to yourself. Meteor dragon. Feels pretty awesome, doesn't it? Why do you geek out so much? Because <laughs> I'm a geek, that's what I do. But oh yes, I know, we both are. Another type of creature that you could uh, also introduce, the Wendigo, which I believe it was an evil spirit that possessed people. And it was more in like the uh, like northeast U.S., eastern Canada. I actually looked. It was on my list anyways. I'm like, Wendigo, I just saw this thing. What the heck is Oh, there it is. Okay. So tell us about Wendigo. The Wendigo may appear as a monster for some characteristics of a human or as a spirit who possesses a human being and made, made them become monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and cultural taboos and such behaviors. The legend lends its name to disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, okay. which is considered a psychiatrist to be a form of culture-bound syndrome, so on and so forth. And yeah, Ogopogo, I was mentioning before, that's essentially a sea serpent monster that is reported to uh, live in British Columbia. I, I believe you also mentioned me before that some Native American tribes also told the story of the Bigfoot as well. And I actually got that right here quick as well, which is actually Sasquatch if you go by its actual name. It's in North, Northern American folklore, is usually described as a large hairy, so on and so forth. Okay. So yeah, this was actually native terms. I'm just trying to find the tribes in this. I actually looked up Native American la- legend creatures. Bigfoot was the second most popular one to be found. I believe there was some concept of realms beyond the earth in some Native American legends. Like the one of the most well-known constellations. Well, technically it's an astronism, the Big Dipper. It's part uh-huh. of the Great Bear. Well, some Native American stories tell the story of the fisher, who's a, I think fishers are rodent-like creatures, but supposedly fisher, he was supposed to be a really great hunter, and he was challenged to go find snow. So he went to the land of the cloud people to try to recover snow, and as he took the snow, he was, you know, running back to escape the cloud people, and it's said that he, instead of climbing back down to earth on the you know, on the the ladder or whatever he used to get up there, he fell, and he's been falling ever since, which how they explain why the, the fisher keeps falling around the North Pole and never sets. And supposedly when he gets close to the earth, he accidentally drops some of the snow that he's carrying, and that's why we have snow in the winter. That's an interesting one. That is an interesting one. Another story I remember reading about, and when I used to work at a planetarium... I always used to love telling this story. It's a, I, I think the tribe was the Tiwa. They saw the constellation Orion as a hero named Long Sash, named for the long belt he wore. And it was said that he was a very wise and benevolent chieftain, and his people you know, lived in a distant land, and they were undergoing a time of troubles, and he led them across 
the Milky Way to reach the middle place called Earth. So it's a very interesting story. I mean, take, look it up if you have a chance. I'll look it up sometime. Yeah, that that's so. Yeah, we do have some concept of otherworldly places in Native American folklore. So, you know, that's another way you could introduce the, you know, maybe not necessarily use the plane cosmology that's been that was introduced in the manual of the planes back in first edition. Or I think that didn't they like in later editions change it to the Great Wheel? Something like that. Yeah, I think it's the Great Wheel actually, yeah. So while you you might not necessarily have to go by that specific model, you could certainly take your Native American adventurers into otherworldly or other dimensional planes. I actually talked about that earlier with the spirit world, so we have to count that into play. Since some legends actually fold into that, which I think there we can start going into some kooky and crazier things. Because this is something that I kind of believe in, and I think this would work out in the spirit world to a point. Because something that I believe in that makes sense is if something is to be wished upon thoroughly, such as a wish for death, upon a certain tribe or something like that, a spirit of death shall appear. So you think so that... The, that's just my thoughts. So like summoning the Grim Reaper, so to speak. To a point, yeah, let's go with that quick. Okay, kind of like playing with a deck of many things and grabbing the wrong card. <laughs> yeah, deck of many things. Crap, I just summoned a lich. <laughs> yeah, you summon... Uh, I think they call them lesser deaths. Yeah, and if someone uh, tries to interfere on the person who drew that card, guess what? The lesser death appears, and for them, too. Here's just one last thing for our medicine people, the Chepi. The Chepi is a spirit of the dead who shares knowledge with medicine people in dreams or visions. So, like a spirit guide? To a point, yes, or because something I can see for the Chepi is twin souls. You know Gemini, correct? Well, one's good, one's bad. Well, it wasn't necessarily one's good or one's bad, at least in the Greek legend. One of them was, okay, Castor and Pollux, I keep getting them mixed up. One of them was immortal, and the other was not. They were the twin sons of Zeus. Ah. And actually, Gemini did figure into the constellation of, or the story of Longsash, where Gemini was the places of decision-making. Because it was said that, you know, whenever Longsash encouraged that whenever, you know, his people had a disagreement with one of their tribe members, they should go to this place of decision making and, you know, sit down and talk about their problems. And now in in real astronomy, one of the stars is a little bit brighter than the other. And it was said that's because it's supposed to be this lesson that sometimes you might be confronted with two decisions Sometimes one decision looks easier than the other, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the easy decision is the best decision. So, sorry I digress there, but okay, go on. (laughs) Something that I could see for the Chepi is this. The medicine man who who is afflicted, I can see this because it can be good or bad, can see the Chepi as someone who is originally good but can be afflicted with evil thoughts, such as avenging someone. So say this group slaughtered a tribe who was affiliated with a spirit, and the Chepi has come in to 
talk to their medicine men, and most chippies are known for good causes to help them avenge entities, so on and so forth, to destroy an enemy as an avenging entity, so on and so forth. Since right now I'm starting to fall asleep here, would you like to explain what I just said? Because <laughs> I don't think a lot of people got what I said. <laughs> yeah, like the – sound like you're talking about a, a, a spirit that could be used for both good or evil purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to call it an episode because this uh, – we've been going for a while. And as I said, you sounds like you're falling asleep right now. So or, I know we're recording this. It's right now about 11 o'clock at night by the time we're finishing up here. So <laughs> – to 11, dear God. <laughs> so I'd like to thank you for helping me out, James. And if no some people want to see some of the videos you've put up on YouTube, where can they find you? Well, look me up at Demon King IX on YouTube. If you want to catch me live, go to Twitch and type in Demon King IX. I play many types of games, such as RPGs. And if you guys want to talk to me, again, Twitch is very useful. Of course, you can find me at POIGamestudio.com. You can also look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. And Point of Insanity Game Studio is also on YouTube as well. So stop by and check out some of the videos I've done. And James has actually helped me out with a couple of them. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming. And I think we're about ready to go to sleep for the day. What do you think, James? Well, I'm going to say this, like I do in every video. See y'all next time, whenever the hell I see ya. Yeah. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>